And let's stand today for the reading of the gospel. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there, and he entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to them, to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated today. Let's pray again together. Father, as we approach your word today as your people, we, uh, we grant, we acknowledge, we depend upon the, uh, the moving and the teaching, the instruction of your Holy Spirit. We, we say to you together that this is his word, unlocked only by his counsel. And so, Lord, now may his gracious power be present with us to help us to hear the words of the Lord and to receive it as your word. And Father, give to us today the desire to obey and give to us today the power to obey, which we know can only come through Jesus Christ. And so now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts today, Lord, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, Lord, are our rock and you are our only redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today we're, we're looking at the fourth commandment as we continue on with this series of, um, of commandments, uh, the Ten Commandments. And a, a sermon like this, I think of um, perhaps more than any other of the commandments, is going to engender questions, uh, things that I can anticipate but that I simply can't work through in one sermon or, or else we'd be here until 8 o'clock tonight. And so I want to encourage you, if, if there are certain questions that you have about this particular commandment and its practical applications, that you please uh, feel free to, to speak with me after the service or to email me um, or call me or whatever it may be, uh, because I, I, I certainly anticipate that questions will arise. Let me begin by reading to you uh, our commandment from, from Deuteronomy 5. This is the Lord's word to his people. The Lord says, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day 
is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, I'm not going to deny today that this is perhaps one of the most challenging commandments to exposit. Especially in the 21st century, we've grown so very disconnected from any sense of its applicability to our lives. We get not killing people. We get not stealing. We get the commandment against idolatry. But setting apart one day as uniquely holy, a day devoted exclusively to God and a remembrance of his acts of power, it seems much less relevant to us. And the sense of the disconnectedness from the fourth commandment is is much more the case in our secularized society. When I was a boy, when I was a boy, the stores weren't open on Sundays. Prior to 1985, Canada was under the Lord's Day Act which prohibited shopping on Sundays. How very different things are today. How very different. The whole concept of a Sabbath breaker, if I just say that word, Sabbath breaker, kind of rings with an air of indifference to us. We're not afraid, generally, of ways that we might break or profane the Sabbath. It doesn't seem to trouble us that that appellation, Sabbath breaker, might apply to us. Certainly, uh, very few of us in recent weeks or months have felt grieved enough to go before God and to confess to him that we've sinned, that we've been Sabbath breakers, that we've not honored the Lord's day as we ought to have done. When we read J.C. Ryle and he writes, Oh, Sabbath breaker, consider your ways and be wise. Why do you so obstinately turn your back on God's laws? When Ryle says this, we hear it like he's speaking some strange and foreign tongue. It's just babbling. It doesn't strike us to be very important at all. We're quite happy indeed as a people, to do, and I, 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 you know, I include myself in this, we're quite happy to do our pleasure on the Lord's Day. Even though God has said explicitly, I don't want you to do your pleasure on my day. That's not what it's for. So brothers and sisters, let me confess to you today that this commandment, it touches us where it hurts. The scripture says very clearly, six days you have to do all these things. Six days you have to do your pleasure. Six days you have to do your work. Six days you have to do your studies. 
Six days you have to do your entertainments. One day a week it belongs to the Lord. One day a week belongs to His pleasure. One day a week is uniquely God's. It's His day. It's the Lord's day, Scripture tells us. And if J.C. Ryle is right, which I think he often is, decay in religion and decay which we all know, if we're honest with ourselves, decay in our spiritual lives of holiness before God, it mirrors directly our attitude towards the Sabbath. And where our attitude towards the Lord's day sinks and plummets, our personal lives of holiness and godliness sink and they plummet. Ryle writes, we've never seen an historic revival of God's power sweeping through the church like a mighty rushing wind. We've never seen it when the Lord's day hasn't been elevated and honored and kept by His people. It's just never happened. So let's consider today, as we work through this carefully, what the Lord's day means. And I'd like to begin by reminding us that this Sabbath keeping, this fourth commandment, is a big and important part of this Reformed and of this Catholic tradition to which we, we uh, belong, this tradition that we uphold, and this tradition that we seek to honor. Archbishop Cranmer, if you look in the prayer book, he has a little catechism here, and if you're ever seeking confirmation in the Church of England, or if you're seeking to be baptized, by the way, if you've not yet been baptized, I command you to repent and be baptized. If you've not yet been baptized, I will lead you through a catechism from Archbishop Cranmer. When Cranmer gets to the Lord Day, the question is asked, why does the church observe Sunday as the Lord's Day? The answer is because it was on the first day of the week, that our Lord rose from the dead. Cranmer then asks, what is your duty as a Christian on the Lord's day? To which the reply is to abstain from unnecessary work, not speaking here of doctors or nurses or preachers, <laughs> to restrain from unnecessary work and to go to church for the worship of God with God's people. That is what is required. Now, Thomas Beacon, who was Cranmer's chaplain, is even stronger. Thomas Beacon's catechism, which is a dialogue between a father and a son, um, the father asks this question, he says, what is it to sanctify the Sabbath day? What is it to set the Sabbath day apart? The son says this, he says, to have our hearts and minds so sequestered from worldly things, to be so free to apply ourselves to spiritual exercises, to let God so work in our hearts by His Holy Spirit that whatsoever His, His blessed pleasure shall be, that He alone may live and rule and reign, and that He alone may triumph in us because we give Him the space to do it. Alexander Noel, he was the dean of St. Paul's. You've heard me talk about Noel's catechism, that other great Anglican Reformed catechism. He says this, he says, On Sunday, we are called to rest from our worldly business, to rest from our works and our studies, 
and as it were to have a certain holy vacation, yielding ourselves wholly to God that he may do his works in us. In this way, he writes, we bring ourselves closer to the image and to the ideal of the eternal rest that's waiting for us. Now, I could go on and on here. We could look at all the Puritans, or at least nearly all of them. We could look at the Westminster Confession, the larger catechism, or uh, the shorter catechism, and we'd find the same teaching, namely, that the fourth commandment, to set apart one day for the Lord, applies to the church as something that's morally binding. That is to say, Christians don't have nine commandments. <laughs> They've got ten. That's the Catholic teaching. That's Reformed teaching. Now, one or two of you might say, well, what about Luther and Calvin? I've heard something about those two and what they said. Didn't Luther and Calvin teach the abrogation that is the annulment of the fourth commandment, that it no longer applies to the church? Now, I have to, I have to kind of do two things. First, I have to scratch my head at that kind of question. And secondly, I have to, I have to respond to it. You know, every morning when Luther woke up, the first thing he did was to recite the Ten Commandments every morning. Then the Apostles' Creed, then the Lord's Prayer, and then he'd recite, you know, half of the Psalter from memory. But every morning he would recite the Ten Commandments, and every night <laughs> he'd recite the Ten Commandments as God's way to freedom. It's true that Luther and Calvin both insist that the Sabbath was a command to the Jews that no longer applies in the same way to the Christian. In one way, that's obvious, right? We don't keep the seventh day. None of us keep the Saturday. In other ways, it's true. The civil obligations of the Sabbath are no longer binding upon us. If I find you gathering sticks outside the service today, I'm not going to stone you. <laughs> if I see you turning your fireplace on or your stove on on a Sunday, I'm not going to put you to death. And so Calvin and Luther, they both write that there's a definite difference between how the Jews observe it and how Christians observe it. But I want you very clearly today to listen to what they say. Calvin writes that unless we keep one day a week for God, our religion and our piety will fall apart. Calvin says there's no hope for your godliness unless you're keeping one day for the Lord. Luther says the same thing. He says this, We must know that God insists upon a strict observance of this commandment, and he will punish all who despise his word. We must not, Luther writes, misuse and desecrate the holy day. Calvin says likewise. Calvin writes this. He says, The day sacred to the Jews was set aside. That is the Saturday. But because it's necessary to maintain order and peace and decorum, godly decorum in the church, and because it was necessary to prevent religion from perishing among us, another day was appointed. Therefore, writes Calvin, we should diligently observe together the lawful order and the day of the Lord set apart for the church. So you see, what Calvin and Luther both, in essence, say is that while we don't need to observe the Sabbath as the Jews did, 
we must obey the Lord's day that the church honors and has set apart as the day of resurrection. So let me just, one more line from Calvin. He, this is in Calvin's sermon on his Ten Commandments. And one of the reasons why we get so kind of hung up on Calvin is that we read Calvin from his institutes, but we fail to read Calvin in his sermons and in his commentary. Calvin's institutes represent something like, you know, 7% of his total written output. The vast majority of what Calvin thinks is in his sermons and it's in his commentary. Now listen to what Calvin says about the Lord's Day. He says, The Lord's Day exists for the purpose of enabling us to set aside our affairs, to set aside our earthly business, in order that abstaining from everything else, we might meditate on the works of God. And when we have spent Sunday in praising and glorifying the name of God, and Sunday in meditating upon His works, then, throughout the rest of the week, we will know that we have benefited from it. It will turn, if we turn up, He says, on a Sunday, and we make it a day for living it up, giving ourselves to our pleasures, indeed, How will God be honored in that? Calvin writes. It's not a mockery. Is it not a mockery, he says? Is it not a profanation of his name? Very strong words. Brothers and sisters, I want to propose to you today that we're lost. The evangelical church is in a fundamental state of disrepair with respect to the Sabbath. As a church, we've lost our way, and we need to find our way back. Now, what are, biblically, the aspects of the Sabbath? There are five aspects to the Sabbath as I see it in Scripture. The first of these is the dignity of work. The first aspect of the Sabbath is the dignity of work. Before God commands rest, God commands work. (laughs) Six days, he says, you shall work. Now notice this is also a creation ordinance. God sets an example as a worker. And God commissions Adam to work in the garden, to cultivate, to follow God's example in taking what is wild or chaotic and making it tame and ordered, to make what is beautiful even more beautiful. That's what work is. Work is taking something that is inherently beautiful and making it more beautiful. And Scripture warns us, does it not, of despising this order of creation. Laziness in the Bible is everywhere warned against. Go to the ant, you sluggard. (laughs) When is the last time someone called you a sluggard? Well, Scripture calls you a sluggard. It's called me a sluggard many times, and has hit me with great force. If a man won't work, Paul says, he won't what? He won't eat. Scripture warns against that. And the fourth commandment, it tells us that God wants us to work. And when we sin against God by not working, we often sin against God by not resting. The ability to rest in God comes because God has given the provision to do all that we need to do in six days. There's more than enough there. 
But when we dilly-dally, when we're, when we're negligent, when we, when we, we kind of um, you know, shuffle our way through life and aren't workers, and we say, well, I don't have time to go to church this Sunday. I've got to get my essay done. <laughs> it's because we disobeyed the first part of this commandment, that is six days you shall work before the Lord. See, what God is saying here, He's saying, I've given you more than enough than you need. Six days are sufficient. Therefore, the seventh day is to be reserved for the Lord. Not to work, not to studies, and not to play. It's the Lord's, the commandment says. That's the first aspect, work. The second is God's concern for rest. God has put his stamp of approval upon rest. And part of the logic of this commandment is to look back and is to remember your servitude in Egypt. Remember how hard it was. They didn't even give you straw to make those bricks. Remember how grinding and difficult it was in those pits. Remember how hard those taskmasters were. And God says, I'm not like that. I'm not like those Egyptians. I delight as a God in giving you rest. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. It's who I am. There's something about the Lord's day and leisure. There's something about the way that the Lord ensures this rhythm of work and rest. Work and rest, that's very important. It provides a balance in our lives that we're apt to forget. We can be tempted in the other way too. As many of us as can be lazy, can be tempted into working all the time. We can be tempted to be these non-stop factories of industry, and it is not good. And God, he leads the way. He rests himself. He goes as the example. He doesn't need refreshment. He doesn't rest, but he shows, as I work, follow me. As I rest, follow me. He says, rest guilt-free. Rest joyfully. Rest from your work because I've done it, and I command you to follow my example, the Lord says. Do it for yourselves. And make sure that you give rest to your own employees. Because God is also concerned about your servants. And God's concerned about your animals. <laughs> make sure your animals are getting rest. God cares for rest for all. The fourth commandment reminds us that rest is a good thing. Rest is a godly thing. And sometimes doing nothing is the best thing we can possibly do. To be like God in that sense. Thirdly, and in connection with this, the fourth commandment is a creation ordinance. The third aspect of the Sabbath is that it's a creation ordinance. We read in Genesis 2.2 that God rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. Now it's important to see that God does this long, long before any sense of ceremonialism is present. This is long before any ceremonial laws. The Sabbath is not ceremonial in this sense, but in part it's being created 
for, or, or it's part of the created order. God builds into creation the rhythm of work and rest. Six days of work, one day of rest. One day out of seven that's holy to the Lord from the beginning. The Sabbath, therefore, needs to be viewed and it needs to be understood alongside the other ordinances of creation. And by that, I mean realities that God has set in place that cannot be changed because they're an order of creation. Namely, namely, creation ex nihilo, made out of nothing and made distinct from God and therefore not part of him in any way. Secondly, humanity created in God's image as a binary and as a complementary pair, male and female. Thirdly, marriage as union between one man and one woman. Fourthly, the goodness of sex and procreation. Fifthly, the call for humanity to steward and to govern and protect all created things. Sixthly, the inherent goodness of all created things. And seventhly, the Sabbath. One day to remain holy to the Lord. You can't change that just like you can't change marriage. It's an order of creation. You can't abrogate that, my brothers and sisters. Even if we agree that the Ten Commandments are God's eternal law because the Sabbath is explicitly part of the created order, we refuse it and we ignore it only to our hurt and to our destruction. Fourthly, the fourth aspect of the Sabbath, and related to this, the fourth aspect of the Sabbath is that it's a memorial to God's creative power and it's a memorial to God's redemptive power. We've just seen that as an ordinance of creation, the Sabbath testifies to God's creative power. And this is what we see in Exodus 20 when it lists the commandment. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth. Why do you keep it? Because it's part of creation. It's what God does. It testifies to God's creative power. But the Sabbath was also meant to bring Israel every week back to a reflection of God's redemptive power. He had saved them from an enemy that was too strong for them. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. As Christians, then, it's not that we disregard these things, but God has become to us so much more, not only now creator of heaven and earth, but architect of a new creation. Not only deliverer of, uh, of Israel from Egypt, but deliverer of the people of God from sin and death and the devil. God has become for us so much more as creator and as redeemer. And now as we honor the Sabbath, we look not only back, to something that happened. But looking back, we now look forward to something that's coming. That is the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth. 
The Sabbath now is so much more. This is why, by the way, Hebrews 4, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And I don't understand how someone takes this verse to mean that the Sabbath has been abrogated because there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Not saying that the Sabbath has been abrogated, but now it's saying the Sabbath is fully understood in the person of Jesus Christ. On Sundays now, as God's people, we enter His rest. On the Lord's Day, we celebrate His triumphs for His great name, and His rest and His victory become our own. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And fifthly, and finally, in in the sense of its aspects, the Sabbath is a sign of God's sanctification of his people. Exodus 31.13, God says, This is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. The Sabbath, my brothers and sisters, is a sign that God is setting you apart from everybody else. And God is interested and always has been in creating a people who are separate from the world. They're different. Young adults have been studying uh, 2 Corinthians, and Paul says it here. Go out from their midst, Paul says. Be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. And brothers and sisters, there are a few things in this life that so visibly distinguish us from the world as a sign that God has set us apart to be His people than honoring the Lord's day. It is a sign that I am sanctifying you. And how visible that is. You know, when I was a young university student in my early 20s, I worked at a place for a long time, and at a certain period they, they asked to if I would consider going up into a management position. And I'd said to them very early on, I became a Christian at 20, I got this job when I was 20, And I said to them very early on, I can't work on Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. I can't do it. They gave me that, they gave me that, uh, that option. And when they, when they had, uh, given me a position of management, they took me out to lunch. I had the assistant store manager and my immediate manager take me out to the white spot for lunch. And they said, okay, now that you're in this position of management, you need to give up this Sunday thing. You need to let it go. You can't be a manager in this store and, and uh, not work on Sundays. It was a very difficult moment. But I looked to them and I said, it's the Lord's Day. <laughs> it's the Lord's Day. And you can take your job. If you want to have your job, I can't work on the Lord's Day. And you know, that, that, <laughs> that sense of, uh, of testimony, I'm different than you are. The Sabbath is a sign that God sets you apart. And he wants it to be a testimony of his holiness and of your devotion to him in the eyes of the world. Brothers and sisters, you're different than they are. Come out from among them and be separate and honor the Lord's day, God says. Well, the question that's going to come to our mind now is what did Jesus say? Because I know I'm going long. I can't help it. We have to hear this. What does Jesus say about the Sabbath? Well, first of all, nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus cancel or abrogate the Sabbath. It doesn't happen. 
Jesus never does it. Rather, Jesus' attitude towards the Sabbath has to do with his passion to reform its practice and to deliver the Sabbath day from corruption and to deliver the Sabbath day from abuse. In particular, Jesus is angered by people who've forgotten that God's Sabbath was instituted in order to help and to bless God's people, to give them rest from suffering, to give them rest from hardship, to give them rest from the difficulty that life can bring. The Sabbath is for wholeness. The Sabbath is for healing. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus says the Sabbath is God's gift to us. It's meant to prosper you. It's meant to help you. Now, Jesus is not going to say, this day is set apart by my Father to help you and to bless you and to prosper you, to give you wholeness, and then say, oh, it doesn't really matter. He's not going to do that. Secondly, Jesus is angered that his people have forgotten the God who has instituted the religious duties that he commands. See, the Pharisees, they'd made the temple and they'd made all the associated religious observances an end in themselves. And Jesus, in our reading today, he has to remind them there's something greater than the temple. Something greater than the temple is here. Pharisees, someone, even I, the Lord of the Sabbath. And whenever religious observance, it becomes an end in itself, we do it for it, then that becomes corrupt and it becomes empty. Even if we observe the Sabbath with only our own health and our own well-being in mind, even then it becomes corrupt if we're not aimed at the Lord of the Sabbath, a day set apart to the Lord, a day that's holy to the Lord. If it's not the Lord's day, then it's not what it should be. In this pattern, a day for our good, a day for our healing, and a day which profoundly belongs to the Lord, the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. It's my day, centered on me. This pattern continues right through the New Testament. And so in Acts chapter 20, Luke writes this, he says, On the first day of the week, when we gather together to break bread, Paul talked with the people. You see, the people of God gather on Sunday. They gather to break bread, and they gather to hear the preaching of the Word. And then we read in St. John's uh, Revelation today, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. I mentioned Ignatius of, of Antioch. He was the third minister of Antioch born just after Jesus died. Likely, Ignatius knew John. He certainly exchanged letters with Polycarp, who was John's disciple. Ignatius writes this. Just think about how early this is. He knew John. He says, let every friend of Christ keep the Lord's Day as the festival. It's the resurrection day. It is the queen and the chief of all days of the week. Well, it's no wonder he thought that because the apostles practiced it. Just before the incident of the golden calf, God says to Moses, above all, Moses, above all, keep my Sabbaths. 
God places importance upon this day of rest. And nowhere in the Old Testament or in the New Testament is the day of the Lord, the Sabbath day, repealed. In fact, whenever you hear discussions of the law in the New Testament, it's also always the whole law. It's always the kind of the unmitigated entire law. James talks about the whole law. In fact, he uses that phrase in James chapter 2, the whole law, not minus one. James takes for granted that the eternal moral law represents something that's never been amended or never changed. And Jesus says, if you love me, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. What about Paul? Jesus didn't abrogate it. What about Paul? Doesn't Paul challenge certain days? Doesn't he challenge this notion of special days and months and seasons and years? Doesn't he say that one man regards one day as sacred, another man another day, and each one should be convinced in his own mind? Yeah, you go to church on Sunday, Nathan. You go to church... I, I go for a stroll down Mission Creek on Tuesday. Is that what Paul is saying? He does say that there's a problem with uh, notions of days and months and seasons and years, but you have to remember the context. Paul is wrestling with large factions of people who are teaching that the ceremonial law including circumcision, is necessary for people to be justified. That they have to keep the Jewish Passover. That they have to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That they have to keep the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Tabernacles and so forth and so forth. But none of Paul's arguments against these things none of which, by the way, is present in the, in, the, in the Decalogue. None of these feasts, none of these days have anything to do with the moral law of God. None of Paul's arguments has anything to do with the moral obligation to keep the Ten Commandments. And brothers and sisters, the same principle applies to you and to me today. In the Anglican community and in the Anglican communion, we have seasons. We have days. We have months. We have the season of Christmas. We have the season of, of Easter. We have Lent. We have Advent. We have Pentecost. We have Trinity. But you're not bound to keep any of these. You're not bound to keep any of these seasons or days. I can't force you to keep Lent. As your minister, I can't say, Josh, you have to keep Lent. But I can tell Josh, honor the Sabbath. Because it's the Lord's day. It's not a day for your pleasure. It's a day to be given to God that He might work in you His light and His goodness and His triumph. Now, brothers and sisters, take for me, take in your imagination two believers in all, in all other respects equal. One lives on Sunday as if she would live on any other day except she goes to church. The other sets the whole day apart to draw near to God, to open herself to His goodness and His power in ways that she can't do on other days. Every week she sets apart the whole day to seeking God. 
Now, on a purely pragmatic level, who's going to be the richer of the two? Psalm 19.11, in the keeping of your commands, there's great reward. God doesn't want to make us poor. God wants to make us rich. And the world beckons you and it beckons me to disregard the Lord's day. The other night we watched an episode of uh, Planet Earth 2. And it was about cities and how animals still dwell in the cities and interact with the cities. And this particular episode was about sea turtles. And how when they come out of the sand at night, when that beach has been encroached upon by a city, the light of the city, the artificial light of the city, confuses that sea turtle. And where instinct should tell it to go towards the sound of the waves, this, this artificial sense of daylight confuses it and it thinks it needs to go to the day. With all that effort, it scrapes its way towards the light. And it gets caught up in all kinds of madness. And it doesn't have the strength to go back to the deep where it belongs. And brothers and sisters, the, Lord, the, the world beckons you to ignore the Lord's day. The light of the city. The light of the world. And its entertainments and its pleasures and all the things that it offers you. Forget about the Lord's day. But the Lord's day is the deep. The Lord's day is the ocean. The Lord's day is that place where he will fill you. If you'll just say, oh Lord, I'll honor you as your word says, and I'll give this day to the Lord. Brothers, resist the world and the faith. Obey the Lord. And I say this to myself even as I say it to you. Keep his day. Swim in the depths. And you'll be the richer for it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, once again, I imagine that as this, this conversation comes up, that many will say, well, can I do this? <laughs> Is this okay? I think in many ways those questions are misleading um, and unhelpful. But uh, I will be happy to speak to anybody about uh, the Lord's Day and how to best uh, seek the Lord and to use it for, for your good and his glory.